Hi guys, David Farrell here. If you're looking for something to read, uh, I've just finished writing a book, so that'll work out great. If you want to find it, you can search in Amazon.com in the Kindle store. It's available to download for Kindle and e-reader. Uh, it's called The Last Resort, and uh, it's available now. So check it out if you get the chance. On with the podcast. Welcome to Pod Me If You Can, I'm David Farrell. And I'm Lloyd Hughes. And here on Pod Me If You Can, we talk about films in the sense that... Spoilers, guys, spoilers. <laughs> we talk about them after we've seen them. So we've seen Primer, we're going to discuss it. It's from 2004, so it's uh, been a decade now since this film was released. Can't believe and, it's uh, been a decade. It's amazing, isn't it? Um, <laughs> obviously, you hadn't seen the film in the, the first decade of its existence, Lloyd. You've seen it for no, the first I've- time now. I've heard so much about it because I'm really in- interested in indie films because I'm a wannabe filmmaker myself. And this film was just like uh, Robert Rodriguez's El Mariachi, funny enough. It was made for $7,000, and I think it's a massive achievement. It is. And unfortunately, like technically, sometimes you can see the holes in this film. I mean, we can get into that in a minute. But Primer won uh, the Grand Jury Prize at, and the Alfred P. Sloan Award at the Sundance Film Festival. And he's coming into this generation of filmmakers where you know your first film is so important yeah. and it really puts you on the map so for primer to be his first film is really fascinating yep i am um, i as well just to quickly deviate i made my own film in 2006 and i'd watched primer in 2004 at the movies and it's one of those films that's really inspiring too seeing the budgetary constraints seeing you know uh, somebody working with their limitations um making a film you know, it it sort of put me in a really good headspace to try and make mine. Um, yeah, it's, it's a huge inspiration. Yeah, and shooting on film as well. This this whole thing was shot on film. That's where most of the budget went. Uh, in 2004, you know, you sort of would have had access to DV and, like, cheaper um, means. But to, yeah. to kind of commit and do that on film is really Brave. a big thing too. Yeah, I, it would be interesting if you could do that today. Like for seven thousand shoot on film, considering there isn't much film places left, you know, unless you're doing a big Hollywood production. <laughs> mm. I like um, I like time travel movies. That's not a secret to uh, people listening to Pod Me. If you can, if you're a regular listener, um, for me, it is a genre that even if a film looks like it's going to be awful, if it has elements of time travel, I will probably watch it. <laughs> um, we reviewed About Time. The um, Richard Curtis romantic story yep. with um, Rachel McAdams. Yeah, you should check out that podcast. We talk adorably about it. <laughs> oh, I'm sure, yeah. Uh, anyway, <laughs> uh, because it had time travel, I was looking forward to it, which forced us to talk about it on this podcast. So Lloyd has been indulging my time travel fascination. <laughs> and my uh, It's not specifically sci-fi based. I just love the idea that um, one day time travel could exist and therefore, you know, at any time, time travel could be affecting our current, you know, um, timeline. Time. Yep. That uh, recently I finished watching the TV series uh, Fringe. And uh, it's not a huge spoiler for Fringe, which finished the other year. But um, observers, uh, these guys wearing bowler hats, uh, have 
and suits have been through all time looking into human existence. And so in all these Renaissance paintings and like photographs and stuff, they've started to notice in the series of Fringe uh, that these observers have been turning up and like being at significant events in human history. And for me, like if time travel did exist, you would think people would go back to significant moments in, in history and, and check them out, right, Lloyd? Mm. Yeah, that's right. I would. Well, I think maybe if I could guess, I think you would go see Muhammad Ali box. Um, <laughs> yeah. You, uh, I, I would love to see how the pyramids were built, um, yep. you know, and all that. But then there's always the risk, as in Primer, um, as with Primer, I should say, that, you know, you could go back and mess things up, you mm-hmm. know, that there's two versions of yourself if you go back within your own lifetime and things like that. And yeah. Just these paradoxes, you know, mind-bending stuff. I enjoy a film that makes you think. Absolutely. And this is that's the forefront of this movie. Like definitely, the director is a super intelligent guy. I think he's an engineer. His background, and he utilized. You know, um, I think Michael Powell said to Martin Scorsese when Scorsese was writing Mean Streets, um, he was looking for an original idea, and he said, "Cultivate your backyard. You'll always find an original idea." So he filmed, you know, just the Italian lifestyle, and it was so original at the time, Mean Streets, because it just seemed so real. And Scorsese said, no, that's just my life, you know, that's just my neighbourhood. And I think Primer, the the d- director puts his intellect, puts his craft, puts his theories right there on the screen, works in completely his strength. Definitely. And as you said, his background of engineering, he's also got a maths background. Cool. Um I think as well he was just interested in time travel. Yeah. I think the same sort of uh, fascination. Um, Probably since, you know, the Terminator came out, people have gone, oh, my gosh, if you go back and then, you know, you can change events and just that simple. Yeah, that's right. You know what I mean? And yeah, time-traveling movies have been a huge success in Hollywood. It's a very fascinating genre to the mainstream audiences. And obviously time travel has existed in novelization and stuff like long before the Terminator. I'm not suggesting yeah. that was the, the impetus for all of this. But um, more recently, like the time traveler's wife, you know, even romantic stories. The book is much better than the film anyway on that. Yeah. Also Rachel McAdams in that one. Um, but even like romantic novels, you know, having a time travel element are becoming bestsellers too. So yeah. it's not as if... I mean, it's like such an impossible thing to imagine. Yeah. Because you think, right, Lloyd, um, if I say the exact day, time, um, place, everything that we're recording this podcast, then there's a written record or audio record rather of it, you know, existing. And if I said, if there is time travel, somebody should come back and record on this podcast with us, you know, and then another version of us or someone from the future would appear, Hmm. you know, or come through the door or knock on the door and record with us, you know, imagine if something like that happened, yeah. how mind-bending that would be. And now I've gone cross-eyed. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I just, I, I love the possibilities, I suppose. Um, and in this film, Primer, 2004, Shane Carruth, um, I like the, the, the Steve Jobs and Wozniacki style of out-of-the-garage yeah. innovation, you know, where they've come up with this idea almost accidentally, you know, argon gas. Who thinks to use argon gas? Just, I don't know what argon gas does. (laughs) What I really like here is not only the natural lighting of it, 
but the dialogue and the way it's just projected like he wastes no time to get into it and he doesn't baby any of the dialogue you're hearing engineers talk and you're hearing them talk in their own parlance like um their own descriptions and everything like that and it's a hot it's a really hard nut to crack like you're just like what are they talking about what's going on here but subconsciously you know something is emerging something important is happening even if you don't understand the dialogue and i'm a big huge fan of that approach to cinema like don't treat the audience as dumb just keep going in that direction and they'll pick it up and i really like that about primer um yeah i think the dialogue has suffered a lot of criticism yeah um a lot of people saying you can't get into this film because you know it starts mid-scene and things like that and it's got such a mind-bending kind of approach because i mean it shows sequences where this voiceover is telling you you know everything that's going to happen and what's been happening and things like that but as well you've got them listening to earpieces with the conversations and stuff you know and you don't know how many times they've lived a moment Mm -hmm. and you know this is the kind of thing where if you go on to imdb and you read the uh, frequently asked questions. Yeah, there are links to people's masters and stuff that they've written about Primer. Wow. Um, there are suggestions that there are up to nine different timelines happening, and um, you know, and beyond. So like, you're saying people wrote their thesis on this and they put it online? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yep, and you can find like several links there. I mean, there's a constant, you know, for the last ten years, for this decade, Shane Carruth's first film has been discussed on the imdb boards like constantly it's one of those things where people are discovering it forcing other people to watch it much like i've made you lord yeah. and um just so they have someone else to talk to about it because it's one of those films that it barely when i saw it at the cinema and i did watch it at the movies um there was almost nobody in the theater wow <laughs> i mean marketing wise you know nothing the day it came out nothing yeah you know you didn't see it on tv anything i mean seven thousand dollar budget they're probably taking a chance putting it out in any cinemas <laughs> it's probably very selected yeah um i went and saw it at hoyt's so you know that's a big enough theater but it wasn't playing a lot uh and almost nobody in there but then since then it's just sort of burned into my mind and the one issue i take with it is unfortunately because of the budgetary constraints there are too many shots that are out of focus <laughs> and that that's one thing that I, I find difficult to forgive unless it's an effect if you're seeing like um blurry vision because somebody's been punched or you know something like that otherwise that it's one of my real pet peeves seeing things out of focus or yeah. when the background is in focus and the person is not i'm actually a fan of that i love the rough style of filmmaking so anything gritty i, I absolutely love <laughs> oh that is where we differ sir <laughs> Because uh, for me, it feels like they just stood at the wrong place or like, you know, didn't quite double check their shot. I, yeah, or I think it the brings case. the hand behind the camera up too much for you. Like you, you see that too much, like the the ghost of the clapper boy and, you know, you see the behind the scenes sort of thing too much. Yeah, it takes you out of the movie, I think yeah. is the easiest way to put it. Um, but yeah, so you've seen it for the very first time, Lloyd. Um, now I don't want to go heaps into the entire film this isn't going to be that in-depth yeah the primer people can find people have written know, the f- novels on the on the meaning of prime <laughs> yeah but um you know some little things that i found really interesting for example there's a scene where she says she thinks that there are mice in the ceiling yeah and i think later we're supposed to believe that 
another version of him is in the ceiling yeah, because uh, you see the attic door that, come that, down. That actually raised the hairs on the back of my neck, like the fact that he's been putting bodies up there and they've been half awake or half dead, just l- their last glimpses of life fluttering. And that's how I interpret it. Like he's been killing a couple of them and then putting them up there and they've been okay. moving around. Yeah, what, what actually happened there? Well, it's, I think, and I think there's a lot of grey areas in this film, so it's hard to actually pin down, but I think it's a version of um, Abe. No, not Abe's the blonde guy. Aaron's the yep. uh, Shane Carruth character, the brunette. Um, Aaron's character, Shane Carruth, I think it's him up there waiting to come down oh. and either like mess with the cereal or it could be him up there recording what you're actually hearing. Yeah. All of this, um, you know, I'm going to tell you everything that's going to happen, you know, audio track kind of thing. Um, But it's a version of him that's gone back using probably the failsafe, which I think is a really fascinating idea as well. Yeah, that's eerie, isn't it? Yeah, no, it's and taking one of the boxes into the boxes as well, going back so he could go back even further. And look, the end of the movie, which we'll just jump to for a second. I mean, it's crazy too, because... He's building a giant box. Yeah. Which, why would he be doing that? You know what I mean? This is the kind of thing you can just speculate on because how many people does he want to bring back? Does he want to bring back a building? Does he want to bring back, like, what is he bringing that he needs such a gigantic box? Yeah. Any ideas? No, I've got no idea. Uh, to, to be honest, um, I, I'm i pretty dumb with plot and this movie lost me in the first 10 minutes but i still enjoyed watching it i thought it was a massive achievement but i'm really dumb trying to figure out what exactly is happening (laughs) this is uh it's been said that people watching the film uh will only get about 70 percent of it the first time through yeah which is a difficult thing to achieve you know when you're telling someone to watch a movie hoping that they get more than 70 percent of it it's like (laughs) the um Another fascinating sequence that, again, is not explained is um, when they're driving at 2 a.m. in, you know, going to go and do a quick trip so that they're not in the box when the other versions of them are in the box yep. or whatever, and they realize there's a car behind them following them, mm-hmm. and it's um, Rachel's dad, uh, Mr. whatever his name is. Yeah, who's drunk or and, something, yeah. Yeah, and he may be drunk, and he has a three-day growth, and they saw him earlier, and for some reason he has now traveled back. And they don't know why, and they don't know why they would have told him about it, and it's not really ever explained. Um, that sort of created a whole new layer to the film because, look, you've got, if they did ever tell anyone else, like, for example, he told his wife or something like that, and they went back in the box and they didn't quite understand what they were doing and there could be multiple versions of multiple people and just, like, it starts to blow it out into a whole different thing. Yeah. Um, but then he... You know, for the purposes of the plot, he goes comatose and um, therefore, you know, doesn't have to do anything else, I suppose. Uh, yeah, like, although I intellectually I didn't understand what was happening, I did see the emotions of it. And from what I saw, like, they basically turned into godlike figures and they're trying to intellectually put some morality to what they've created but in the end, I don't know if they've lost their sanity or if they've lost their grasp or if they're trying to apply some sort of logic to it. But I don't know, like uh, one of them, as you said, we're building the larger box, has really ventured out. He saw something 
that we that really isn't explained but he's venturing more into that area you know what i mean like he's there's, there's sonic that he saw the possibilities from that box and he's gonna you know awaken it it's very interesting well i like that as well at the beginning you sort of think if you had a time machine what would you do yeah and it seems like most people would get rich quick. yeah um which they do they play the stock market which i'm not sure is the easiest way to do it yep um i think as well it creates a paper trail and creates like you know insider trading stuff if somebody just started winning 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 on the stock market a lot like i mean i think it would raise a lot of red, red flags but anyway um yeah and then they went past the economics and then they went into something else like you know yeah i guess sort of like about time if i can just compare it to that for a minute in about time there's a, a car accident and in in that you know moment he sort of decides whether or not he wants to go back and fix what's happened because of that car accident thereby changing things um you know in in this there's the shotgun party incident um where somebody walks into a party with a loaded shotgun and i guess kills someone you know or himself um and that's the incident which you know where their morality comes into play and whether or not they want to stop this incident because of i guess the implications of changing things rather than um getting rich and you know in a way um i feel like the amount of repeat versions of themselves that there could be could have been explored a bit better um there's a book called the man who folded himself which i think is a great follow-up if uh, people are looking for something interesting and it's it's about a guy who um i think he has a belt if i remember correctly and he basically continues he initially takes himself to the racetrack to um you know uh make money quick but um different versions of him are coming back you know and telling him not to do something you know at different points in the book and there's like all this overlap of like yeah it's a crazy amount of versions of him time traveling all over the place and through hundreds of years and things like that and he keeps sort of seeing himself and uh interestingly and i don't know whether or not people will find this interesting but he decides uh to make love to himself so jeez that's that's the the teaser for the book that i'm going to do if people are interested with uh primer and he constantly uh duplicates themselves there's an implication that their physical bodies are disintegrating through the process like i think his ear just starts bleeding did they did they explain that more or was that just implied also i mean his handwriting deteriorates which i think is that's cool one half of of your brain yeah uh so if it's bleeding whatever uh, it's all up in the head isn't it yeah um i guess the implication is that long-term exposure to argon gas the um the way your body is time traveling i mean it's not something the human body is used yeah, to. yeah I, th- I think there's an implication as well just going back to the big box thing that they're slowly going mad like madness is setting in like i know they're meddling with powers that's beyond human understanding but there is a uh implication of disintegration of logic as well like the the power yeah. is getting to them and corruption and you know and all the rest of it i think there's just a slight implication of that well as well i mean just to jump back to the the thing about the the father being back there and that which one of them would have told 
you know, him about it and how would you predict things like that, it becomes a series of trying to predict what the future version of you might do given situations you're not even aware of yet. Yeah. It's it becomes impossible, you know. I mean, it's becomes probability and stuff, you know. It's um they're smart guys, but as well, it's like trying to predict the future, isn't it? Yeah. You know, pardon the pun. Um Yeah, look, for a first film, it's fascinating. Oh, isn't it's it? brilliant. Yeah. I, I think um, on a technical level, uh from most low budget movies I've seen, I think he actually did very well with it. Uh, I think the editing's really tight. I think um the compositions are very tight, like it's a very in that sense, it's very eloquently done considering the budget constraints he w- he was given. Look, and as well, I mean, just starting scenes in the middle of the scenes, yeah. in the middle of the conversation, I mean, I think is a really interesting way. Yeah, it's like he's got to a, do it. you know, he studied film for a long time. Like, considering he's got an engineer and mathematical background, I'm so envious of his skill level. Like, he just seems like he'd been making movies for a while. It's such a daring, you know, most people, when they make movies, they stick to the basics, long shot, medium shot, you know, close up, you know, and all the rest of it. And he's beginning midway, you know, <laughs> very uh, mm-hmm. well ahead of his um education uh, again i think the limitations of having seven thousand dollars and how much film of you know they shot two to one so they did two takes for each scene mm. that they needed maximum two takes that's why sometimes i think the acting is a bit dodgy sure. and sometimes look the audio has been recorded on another device and lip synced up and mm. that's quite obvious um but it's one of those things where the story is so interesting i think yeah that you forgive the technical mistakes yeah. um and it's one of those films that i think people will find and look there's gonna be an ongoing discussion about i think what hides it as well is that natural look like that natural yeah. lighting it's for a sci-fi film where you normally have really elaborate lighting uh this is just really natural lighting and there's no the technology is very low tech like it's not like they got a big laboratory with a big massive machine it's just these boxes with a timer on it yet as you said it's the ideas that this presents and the way it's going about it and the dialogue it's just so beyond um you look way past all that and look the idea just quickly if you haven't seen this film they build a box and the idea is when you turn on the box which they do on a timer they turn the box on on a timer and then they'll leave and then you go live your life do however long you want to do you know and that becomes the exit point when you turned on the machine is when you get out of the machine so that's why you can't be there when it turns on because then another version of you will come out and that'll create issues yeah um but you turn the machine on on a timer and then you leave and if you go and you know live six months of your life whatever you live and you go back to the machine you get into it the point you're going to come out is the point you turned it on. Mm. So you've jumped back in time however long. And having that failsafe running the entire time, meaning they can go back and, um, you know, redo everything from the beginning. And then one of the characters goes back with a machine he's folded up inside, goes back to even further, turns on a second failsafe, you know, going back, you know, even further and stuff like that. It's... it's um, yeah, like I've said, mind-bending a couple of times. It's one of those films that I've rewatched a few times and I'm still asking questions myself, yeah. you know. It's purposefully full of paradoxes and timelines mm-hmm. and you can read different viewings on it. You can read these master's ones that exist 
you know, just people who've spent so long talking about this. Yeah, I've got. Uh, um, I just clicked on a link on a website that's just pages and pages, a whole explanation on the on what's happening. <laughs> Lloyd um, gives me a lot of credit on this podcast for uh, talking about Christopher Nolan well before everybody else was. Yeah. Um, I, I really enjoyed Memento, which you know Christopher Nolan's early film, and uh, Following was his first film, which we've talked about a little bit on the podcast. And um, if nothing else from this podcast, I hope people take away that Shane Carruth is going to do something amazing in the future. What, I think. What exactly has he done since uh, Primer? He did uh, a film called Upstream Color, which I've also seen. It's um, something I would like to tackle on this podcast. It's one of the ones I was looking forward to in a previous episode. Mm-hmm. We often do these upcoming film podcasts and for those who don't what listen. was um, in between? Like, uh, So this came out in 2004, and when did Upstream Color come out? I think it was 2013. Wow, okay. So what's he been doing in between? Um, I know that he tried to get a film. It was called something like A Topiary. Um, off the ground, mm-hmm. which I think had animated elements and um, became a bit um, ambitious. Uh, he has talked on record about that. I'm sure people can find it, but I can't remember why a topiary didn't work. Um, but since a topiary upstream color, that's it. So, um, yeah, a little bit hit and miss. I'm sure he's been working within the Hollywood system a bit too because uh, he actually was a consultant uh, to do with Looper time travel film we've talked (laughs) about on the podcast as well um yeah so he he would have talked to ryan johnson the director of looper and i think they were talking about you know paradoxes and time travel and that would be the area of expertise that's the the common ground Mm -hmm. but upstream color is another really interesting film and it is the kind of film that once you watch it for a lot of the movie you are saying i don't know what is going on I have no clue who that is, you know, um, it's another real thinker. Yeah. Um, and the funny thing is, is that at the end, you've got a pretty clear reading on it. Yeah. Um, a lot more answers come to light. More so than Primer? Probably more so than Primer. I think Primer's got a lot of purposefully vague stuff. Yeah. Um, and I think Upstream Colour offers, uh, well, I guess you can draw better conclusions from what you're given. Um, I won't put in spoilers for it, but he also stars in that one. So he's written, directed, and starring, and editing, and scoring, I believe, all of these in the same way Robert Rodriguez does. Um, So, look, as I said, if nothing else, I want to point out that this is one to watch, uh, this director. He's going to make something within the studio system that's going to blow all of our minds. Wow. Because these more independently budget ones seem to only find independent audiences whereas i think if somebody gave him 15 million 20 million dollars and said here you go let's make your next film yeah he's almost become like cronenberg because cronenberg um you know it's it's really hard to get into his films a lot now especially with cosmopolis and uh, dangerous method they're intellectually stimulating but it's 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 a hard barrier to penetrate because you you're so used to the three act structure, the Hollywood films, the emotional films. There is no real emotional engagement with Primer. I feel it's all an intellectual stimulation. You re- your mind really has to be focused, and you have to let go of things. And you know, um, and I, I don't know. I think I don't think the director will ever get a mainstream connection. And I do hope he keeps making movies because I do prefer 
that cinema has all kinds of um, different variations of storytelling rather than the standard Hollywood, you know, stories we see over and over again. I, uh, I'm going to disagree because I think when he gets a connection, if you will, mm-hmm. um, I think that the element that's missing is uh, the budget and a, an A-list star. I think if yep. you added those two things, you would see a film like Looper or you would see uh, a film like there's one called The Edge of Tomorrow with Tom Cruise. Have you heard about that one? No. I th- is he's, that the um, new one that's coming out where he's in the future? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. He's, uh, he's redoing an event over and over again trying to i mean emily blunt's in it as well he's wearing like a a robotic suit he's like doing a little war scene where he's got to try and survive this little bit of war and then he time travels back and forward back and forward uh repeating the same bit of battle i think um, yeah if if the trailer is anything to go by but where, um, where was the emotional um draw in primer um i guess it's a more of a morality tale it's yeah um, but I think there is more emotional stuff in Upstream Color. Um, oh, okay. Which yep. is, as he goes, look, he's going to improve. There's no question. Yep. Um, but I was going to say as well, there's um, the Jake Gyllenhaal movie uh, where he's on the train. And I can't think of the title right is now. Is it with Dwayne Johnson, The Rock? No. No, okay. Um, <laughs> I'll, I'll look it up. But, but basically, there's a Jake Gyllenhaal movie. Um, and he is on this train... Um, and he pretty much has to repeat this same bit of time over and over again. And, uh, to stop this, this bomb going off, there's a bomb on the train and, um, Oh yeah. Um, yeah. I've seen that film. It's not by Tony Scott, is it? I don't think so. No, No, it's Source Code. Uh, You're thinking of Deja Vu with um, Denzel. Deja Vu, yeah. Uh, Duncan Jones directs Source Code. Yeah. where an action thriller centered on a soldier who wakes up in the body of an unknown man discovers he's part of a mission to find a bomber of a Chicago commuter train. Very similar to, to uh, Deja Vu. And um, 12 Monkeys in a way. A little bit like 12 Monkeys, sure. Yeah. Um, but I think, like I said, Shane Carruth, Carruth is going to um, get one of these really fascinating movies when he gets, like, and one that everybody watches mm. when he gets an A-list star. Yeah. And uh, I think he's making connections in Hollywood too. Yeah. You know, so I think it's a matter of time. Um, director Steven Soderbergh, who we love on the podcast, <laughs> we've we dedicated our 75th episode to every film he's ever made. Um, he told Entertainment Weekly, I view Shane as the illegitimate offspring of David Lynch and James Cameron. <laughs> Fascinating. Which is a, a great description. You love David Lynch and James Cameron. Oh, absolutely. Lord. Some of my favorite directors of all time, definitely. So imagine their ideas melded together. <laughs> and I think, I think you know, this is a great jumping off point for us bringing him up in future podcasts. I hope uh, we get to cover Upstream Color in the mm-hmm. future. Um, look, from here, where would Pod Me If You Can go? <laughs> what, what would we do next episode to counter this heavy time travel, complicated indie film, Lloyd? What if we discussed, say, the most mainstream, toy-based <laughs> film we could find? Okay, what'd you have in mind? Oh, I think we should do the Lego oh. movie, Lloyd. I think... Uh, I would love to do the Lego movie. <laughs> excellent. Well, we'll both go and watch the Lego movie now, and uh, listeners can go and check it out, and next week we will put up the Lego movie, which uh, will be... Well, it's in cinemas now in Australia, but I believe it's already come out in the US. We'll... Um, 
We'll talk all about it next week on the podcast. <laughs> and uh, you can find more of us at www.podmeifyoucan.com. Of course, we have uh, links to our YouTube channel, Lloyd. Do you want to tell everyone about that? Yeah, our YouTube channel where we review obscure movies with your favorite stars. Um, like normally straight to DVD movies or movies that you find in, um, you know, the service station um, bargain bins. And uh, some of these are terrible. Like I'd say most of these are terrible movies. And these five-minute reviews just gives you a taste of what of what they are, you know. So, <laughs> but others are gems. Others are gold. Like you know. So yeah, it's it's the films you probably haven't seen with the stars you love, isn't yeah. it? I mean, um, there's a, a Brad Pitt one up there at the moment. I'd never heard of that movie. Um, there's a lot of a lot of stars you love, guys. Yep. Thanks for listening. Uh, Lego Movie next week if you watch it in the interim. And uh, lots of movies for you to check out. I think there's over 30 there now. So um, on our way to our big 50th episode, which is going to be great. All right, Lloyd, I'll talk to you next week. Thanks, guys. All the best.